0: Welcome to Three Things with Rick Elias, featuring fascinating conversations with some of the world's most insightful people and three inspiring life lessons at the end of every episode. Today's guest is one of few leaders who can say they truly changed the world, Hugh McCall. He's the visionary leader who built Bank of America into what was once the world's largest bank, a process which shaped the modern banking industry as we know it today. He's also been called the man who built Charlotte for his undeniable role in transforming this small, unknown town into one of the fastest growing cities in the Southeast. On three things, we do our best to keep episodes close to 30 minutes, but that's just nearly impossible with Hugh. In this special episode, hear what it was like to grow a business by 50 times its original scale, and what, in his opinion, it was really all for and of course Hugh shares his unique perspective on helping to build a city over the course of four decades from education systems to arts and culture and even bringing an NFL franchise to the Carolinas for the very first time this is three things with Hugh McCall
1: Hugh this is long time coming you and I have been friends since I moved to Charlotte and early on you were always very kind to me and I've learned a lot from you so welcome to the podcast Thank you. So how are you feeling? How are you
2: doing? Well, I'm doing fine. I keep busy, and I think that helps keep me alive. I, I never thought I'd see 88, but I'm there. <laughs> so,
1: Hugh, how many companies have you started since you retired?
2: Well, I always say six. That may be the wrong number. I, right after I retired, I started a investment bank, McCall yeah. Partners, yeah. Maybe a year or two later, I started two art galleries, one in New York and one in Charlotte. And then I started a cattle company in South Texas, started raising Longhorns. And then so ultimately I created um, a private equity firm, Foul Furious Capital, which we still
1: have. Yeah, and recently started a new firm, right? A couple of years ago in the middle of the pandemic, Bright Hope.
2: Yeah, Bright Hope is a venture that i have undertaken with two men yeah. who happen to be African-American and uh, our goal is to invest in African-American businesses and to help, I call it economic emancipation, trying to help people mm-hmm. make more money and to free themselves from not having opportunity. And so the three of us, uh, we got some help from the Bank of America. and. I, I'm happy to say we're doing quite well.
1: I'm sure you have some connections there, huh? Yeah, I had a few connections.
2: <laughs> but, but the truth is, they wanted the help, and so it's turned out well.
1: So Hugh, okay. I just want to stay on this point for a second. You retired at 66, yes, about 66, exactly right? Mandatory that, yeah. retirement. And you've started six companies since. That's not normal. I just want to point out, yeah. you are 88, and every time we meet, you have a bunch of thoughts and ideas and everything else. What's the driving force be behind this constant wanting to be engaged and learn?
2: I think intellectual curiosity has a lot to do with it. I'm curious about everything and about how it works, and I'm very interested in the why of things. And so it caused me to study it. I don't know what drives me, but when I see a problem mm. and I think I know the answer to it, then I think, why don't I just fix it? So. Always have tried to do that. In other words, I see an opportunity, I I seize it. I I used to think I could do anything. I don't think that anymore. And so I've narrowed my vision, but I, I, I can't get over the fact that every time I encounter a problem, I want to solve it. I love it. I love it. Like that's what drives So here, I, I looked
1: at the stats, and when you became CEO of NCNB, I believe the market cap was around $700 million, and then 18 years later, when you retired, Bank of America had a market cap of somewhere around $84 billion, yeah, and that's down. about 120 times the original value. When you look at that, how do you feel about that kind of value creation and the boldness that it took?
2: Well, to be honest, I don't think that I ever thought about it in those terms exactly. When I first went to work for the bank, all the big business in the South was handled by New York banks, Mm. and I didn't like that. And I, I guess that I spent my entire business career trying to overcome what I thought were regional disadvantages, and the disadvantage of being Southern. Arguably... I didn't like being a little period so as a physical person or as a as a corporation, so I was always intent upon getting bigger and stronger. I have this moment in time that's burned into my memory one time I was reading the results of the Bank of America at that time uh from California, and its its earnings were more that year than the size of my company, and I realized. We really weren't important, and I had to do something about
1: that. And then you went and bought them.
2: Yeah, years later, I bought them. (laughs) And I have to admit, it really was a good buy because we did no premium. We were able to buy a bank that made us briefly, about a week, the largest bank in the world, without paying a premium for it, which was a remarkable thing.
1: That is amazing. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it looks like there's a lot of consolidation potentially coming in this time period. Yeah. It's amazing how the pendulum swings because you you led, yeah. you know, as when they opened the the over the state line coverage, you led a lot of that consolidation. What what is your thinking of the current banking system and and is there a consolidation coming?
2: Well, yes, I, I, it's clear. I want to go back to when I first Came into the industry, there were fifteen thousand banks, more or less, and fifteen thousand savings and loans, so thirty thousand institutions. Now today, there are about five thousand banks and no savings and loans, basically. There may be one or two, but I don't know about them. Yeah. And so we've had a we had this huge consolidation in the eighties. I'm sure that we're going to have a consolidation going forward. And you could argue it's like, mind paw grocery stores. There's just mm-hmm. there's no place for the small bank. Small means a different word now than it used to be, so you can be small at $10 billion in assets, mm-hmm. where it used to be that hundred million billion was small. But the truth is we're going to have a consolidation because it makes sense, mm-hmm. and almost 100% of that is driven by the difficulty of building the electronic systems to operate with and to obey the law. In other words, the restrictions on the banks are so much that there's so many records they have to keep that it takes... Very good software to Mm -hmm. survive. Now, I want to correct you on one thing you said. Uh, We didn't just use the system that was in place. We changed the system. Mm. We changed the law. How did that happen? So that we could move across state lines.
1: What's the story behind that?
2: Well, we couldn't. When I first came along, you couldn't leave your state. You couldn't own a company across state lines and this made no sense to me cause McDonald's could operate in Virginia and South Carolina or French I used to say in Greensboro North Carolina and Greenville South Carolina did the state line didn't matter so why did it matter to us well it mattered because there was a what i call franchise protection acts in all the states where mm-hmm. they protected their banks from anybody competing with them and so we set out to get the law changed and we did it we we lobbied both sides of the house, both sides of the street, so to speak, the Republicans and the Democrats. And under Clinton, we were able to get the law changed that allowed us to own a bank or bank holding company across state lines. And we were almost by ourselves, the only other bank that really cared about that was Fleet Financial out of uh, Rhode Island. They were our allies in in the lobbying, but nobody else really. And then later, we got the law changed the second time, which allowed us then to merge Uh, the banks that we owned in the, by then owned banks in about 13 states, but we were able to merge them into a single bank. So we changed the law twice. We changed the national law twice, so. That's incredible. So we're the ones that made it all happen.
1: Did you ever talk to Bill Clinton about this?
2: Oh yeah, of course. We we spent a
1: lot of time together. Uh,
2: He he was an interesting man. He had a he's very intelligent, highly intelligent, and it made sense to him. I went down to meet him when he was running for president down in Georgia. I ended up having to wait after a big show. He was late as always, and then we ended up talking in his motel about nine o'clock, and he ordered fried chicken, and I don't really like fried chicken. He ate the whole bucket of fried chicken. And, <laughs> his, and his wife was asleep in the bed. We were in a- So you're she, in the room with- I'm in with, Elra is asleep in the bed, trying to sleep. And I'm talking to Bill, and we talked about two in the morning. And I remember, I think it was Albany. And I remember going out and having to climb the fence, and to, climb get, the to, fence. to get into the airport, and to wake up my pilot who was asleep in the airplane and fly home. So that was my first experience with Bill Clinton. But that was when I talked to him about interstate banking. And that was the beginning of a a long relationship that lasted through his his eight or 10 years of being there. Anyway, we got the law changed twice. Is there a law in banking that should change now? I think that the problem with regulation is it tends to close the door after the horse is out of the barn and it precludes a lot of loans now that really are needed in the, let's say, the lower part of our uh, economic structure. It's much harder for, let's say, small business and minority business to get credit today than it was yesterday. And the regulators would think, no, that can't be so, but it is so. They made it more difficult.
1: You know, and and clearly it looks like there's two economies today right there are people Absolutely. that are doing incredibly well but a lot of these smaller businesses especially the ones in downtown areas where people are not coming back to work are really struggling so. they're struggling
2: and they have a very hard time getting credit it's still it's still a problem and it's um and part of that as you know is uh, it's you it's easier to handle one big loan than 100 little ones and so You have the natural order of things making it difficult to get it without regulation getting in the way, but then regulation makes it more difficult. So I'm against a lot of bank regulation. I I think the capital regulation is fine, but I think when they get into telling you what you can't and can't do in lending, then they're going to they cut off people from
1: credit. Is this a pendulum? Was there a lot of regulation, went away, and now it's come back?
2: Yes, I think it is a pendulum, and I think our economy is a pendulum, as you well know. And we we go through ups and downs, and they swing wildly. The, the, The further they swing, then the more damage they do on either end of the cycle. Mm. And we've been in this low interest rate cycle for a long time, and it's done a huge amount of damage because people were making business decisions based on no cost for the More money, no risk, and no no monetary risk. And now the risk has gone up dramatically, and will go up further. Yeah.
1: And so we're going to see some trouble. So you believe inflation will sustain, or high interest rates will sustain?
2: Well, I think we're going to continue with high interest rates until we, as long as the Federal Reserve Chairman has the guts for it. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul Volcker had the guts to mm-hmm. to make the overnight rate get to a hundred and the prime yeah. rate got to twenty twenty four percent. You couldn't get any money, so it didn't matter. Anyhow, the uh, how do you
1: think Powell's is doing? What grade would you give well, him right now?
2: I give him a, a a good passing mark at this stage, and I I have no reason to think he won't have the courage to stay the course. I yeah. uh, hope he will. But as you well know, that requires us to have a downturn at some point. A lot of people now think that we thought was going to come this year or may come in by mid- mid-year next year, but who knows? It's going to take whatever it takes. In other words, it, it, it may take much higher rates than we have yet seen. Yeah, And we've had higher rates before. People act like we haven't. But yeah. I remember when the 10-year note was 16%. So.
1: It's a different world. It's a different world, So, but it can happen, is my point. So you, you talked about both a Republican and a Democrat as presidents that you were engaged with. You have voted on both sides of the aisle. How has your view of politics and your <laughs> engagement changed over time? I, I guess
2: I've become more liberal, if you want to use that word, over my lifetime. Much more liberal. But I'm really liberal about human rights and civil rights issues and... I'm a centerist on of every other issue. In other words, I would I'd say I'm a center leftist. Uh if you if you consider it left to think all humans pull their pants on the same way, then I'm liberal. And uh if, if I and, and while I'm not a very religious Isn't that person. Is scary
1: that that's a definition of being a liberal? Yeah.
2: Well, I think that's what it is. I mean, and and I I don't dislike people because they're gay, and I don't dislike people because they're black, and I don't dislike people because they're one religion or another. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Mm -hmm. Now, I believe in the admonition that to whom much is given, much is expected, and that's the way I live my life. And I also believe in the admonition that do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, and that's not complicated. So I'm a liberal if that's what a liberal believes. (laughs) But I am a Democrat and uh, I grew up in the South and in North South Carolina if you weren't a Democrat you could be a Republican you just couldn't vote.
1: They didn't have a Republican party. Isn't that right? The South was all Democrats. Yes. When did that change?
2: Well when I was a child I grew up in South Carolina in in the 60s and 50s, 40s, it was a Democratic state. But when I came here, uh, the Democrats and business, really the black people and the business community ran the city, and that was the Democratic side of the House. Now over the years, the business community left the Democratic Party and went to the Republican Party, but I never left. And (laughs) And the reason is, I understand arithmetic. It, you know, really, if you think about it, I mean, like, the Democrats run this city, yeah. period. So do you want to be part of the people that run the city, or do you want to be against it and beat your chest and accomplish zero? I mean, I have a lot more influence by being on the side of the winners.
1: I'm sure it's deeper than that.
2: Well, that's it's it's what I said. I believe everybody pulls their pants on the us. Uh, I it's, think that's right. I mean, and I don't hate people for for, for no reason whatsoever.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you think we'll ever get to a place where, Hugh, where we don't have this kind of dialogue of hate both sides, of mm-hmm. complete partisan? Are you hopeful on that? I am hopeful
2: on that. I think that what has pulled us together in the past is something that challenged the nation, wars.
1: Common enemy.
2: Common enemy. And the common enemy today may well be global warming. It may be that we've got a common enemy and we just haven't recognized it yet. But we're starting to feel it. And all this weather's doing that.
1: You were just telling me, Hugh, that you have your ranch in Texas, and your average temperature in July was what ten years ago, and what has it been this year? Well, it's year?
2: gone from let's say average temperature eighty nine ninety two, to ninety nine one hundred and five. So in ten years. Ten years, yeah, and this is real. I mean, it's real the real heat, and it's it's wet heat, and so it's close. I mean, it's it's. Tough, and the and it feels like 115. I mean, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. it's hard to work. My, my team down there on, on the ranch, it work, really works from about 5:30 in the morning until about 11 in the morning, and then they have to quit. And That's crazy. The equipment won't even work. I mean, you know, overheat your tractors and everything else. It just can't. You can't cool them. It's just unbelievable. <laughs> you,
1: you think about this. Even if we do everything we can today, which we're not, it will yeah. take 20 years for it to reverse. Or at least. Yeah. yeah, We're going to have to go through so much worse. We need the
2: leadership. Yes. We need the leadership. We don't—that means world leadership, and that means four, five, six leaders around the world, really, that that do run the world, coming together—China, United States, Germany, France, Japan, Russia.
1: It's interesting because this week was the first time that Biden's administration actually came out with something, you know, some policy level.
2: Yeah, well, it's got got to come.
1: So, Hugh, you've gotten well-deserved awards recognition in this city because there's always many hands that make a difference, but yours, by all accounts, rose above all others. And what you've done for this city is remarkable, and you have left us all both a gift and a legacy and a responsibility, and I've always told you that. I believe that many of us have to try to do what you've done for the city. When this recognition comes your way, what does that feel like?
2: Well, it feels good. I I think I'm much more pleased at what I've been able to accomplish, let's say as a citizen, than what I accomplished as a business person. Um, In other words, I enjoyed my banking career. I really enjoyed it, had a great time with it. But I feel better about what I did here in the city than I do about the bank. Um, and that's an interesting thing to say. I mean, I-
1: For I, someone who ran the largest bank in the world, I'd be for a week to say that is is pretty remarkable.
2: Well, I'd like to say, but, you know, you like to think you made a difference in the world you lived in. And I guess that's really all I've ever wanted to do is somebody that when I die, they say he, he mattered. And that's really what I would like, hmm. I, I think, to be said. That I made a difference. If you think about the world we live in, and, and you and I are probably perfect examples of it. For instance, I don't. A lot of people that are in politics they worry about taxes. I think it's a great country where you can pay a million dollars in taxes. Exactly. It doesn't bother me a damn bit. I've never missed a dollar I paid in taxes. So, I mean, I think it's how you look at things, and I guess I look at where we are today and what separates us and I, it bothers me that um, we've left so many people behind economically and intellectually. I have been trying to do something about that. It, it, I know I can't fix it, but I can fix part of it on the way out. So That's what I want to do with the last decade of my life is to, is to have made a difference for the people that need help. Now, the interesting thing I've discovered and you to say I should have known this because I believe this there's really no there's nothing there's no um quote monolithic white community and there's no monolithic black community they're people, mm-hmm. and there's a bell shaped curve of capability personalities, everything in all the sets of people who may have different skin color. that's just one of the things that that affects us and so what I've learned is that that the help doesn't have to, it's not alms, it's just introducing, it's contacts, it's encouragement, it's talking out ideas, Mm -hmm. and then taking it all the way to action. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And so that's what I try to do. And there's plenty to do, so that has kept me alive. I mean, I'm never out of things to do.
1: You've seen this city go through Remarkable changes since you moved here, 60 years ago. We were yeah, just talking about. Um, yeah. I, I think that at least today, Charlotte, you could argue is one of the great stories of America of the last you know 30, 40, 50 years. In terms of cities that you know have really had a, an incredible uh, renaissance and boom. And what is unique about this city is I think people ultimately that move here end up caring about the city. Right? There's there's this common sense of responsibility. What were the key moments for Charlotte in that journey? Like when you look back, you're like, oh, wow, if that goes this way or that way, it would well, have been th- different. Well,
2: I think it's clear to me that the most important event that has happened in Charlotte's history happened about 1963 or some time along about that when we integrated the schools. Mm. And we were faced with the choice of, of either doing it or doing like Boston did and some of the other cities did, having violent uh, opposition. And the business community came together, and walked arm in arm with the black leadership up, up um, Trade Street to the square, in unison that they were going to we were going to have peace in our city. And I've often said that what was the business of Charlotte is business. We were not a political town, hmm. and we've always been a good town to live in. And so, when I think that critical period there in the 60s we got through with very little violence we had some but very very little and the leadership was always far having a smooth transition as opposed to fighting yesterday's battles mm-hmm. and so i i think if you think about it and i've always said it's it's not a random confluence of events what really happened was that once we brought 25 to 30 percent of our population into the game, Mm -hmm. it changed the economics positively for us. And Charlotte and North Carolina began to grow faster than -hmm. the United States, both in economic terms and in population. And people came back here, A great influx of African Americans came Mm -hmm. from the North to live here. I joke about it. We got more people living here from New Jersey than people in New Jersey have living there, and we and that was caused by our financial <laughs> institutions hiring yeah. good yeah. people from that had experience up east. And so, we've been a good place to live and raise a family. When I first came here, I was bored with it. I was an ex-marine. I'd been overseas for two years and come home and. To a town that didn't sell whiskey by the drink, couldn't dance to live music, had more, had more churches, and we had bars. Um, and I thought this was a boring place. And I remember asking somebody, <laughs> why, "What do people like about this town?" And they said it's a great place to raise a family. So about sixty years later, maybe about fifty-five years later, I made a speech downtown, and I told that story, and I said it's been a great place to raise a family, but it hadn't been for everybody. We left half the families behind as we grew and prospered. And so that's what I think our challenge is. Mm -hmm. And how do we bring the rest of the people the same thing that we've given to ourselves? Do you you
1: think we're doing enough right now?
2: No, we're never doing enough, but we're doing a lot. Mm -hmm. And I've been real proud of the CEO leadership group because I think they've addressed issues at Johnson C. Smith University that have to do with majors and training and internships and jobs. And if I haven't learned anything else, and I'm really convinced of this, and I think you've been the leader in this, is that Red Ventures has, and that is that training somebody for a job, giving them the job, and then letting them run with it will solve issues like housing and education. In other words, instead of us trying to patch education and patch housing, we should be training people. And so that's what I'm concentrating on a lot now is job training. And and uh, and I know you are, and I know the other businesses are, and this is important. It's the most important thing. And and the good news is there are lots of jobs that are out there that are going begging. <laughs> the bad news is there are a lot of jobs out there going begging. So trying to get people to reach up is still an issue.
1: Going back to your point that the business of Charlotte is business, you know, if you study this, we are very uniquely structured, right? We're the largest city that doesn't have a full-time mayor. And while our mayor is terrific, and she does an amazing job, it's a city that like politics really don't exist because we have a city manager that is hired and we have short terms in city council it's really almost like politics really never got into the core of who we are and i like that and i
2: think that's one reason we're successful and i've had arguments with michael marciano who's a good friend he wants to talk about needing a powerful mayor and i think why would you want one look what happened to chicago when they've had powerful mayors i mean i i prefer our system works and it it what it what it means is it devolves to us that is we the citizens to make this a great city we we don't look to one person to make it
1: a great city that we
2: have true. to work together to make it a great city
1: so speaking of there's a legend and i want to get to the bottom of this <laughs> that there was such thing as the group yeah. at some point in charlotte where i believe it was a handful of People you included that informally got around and worked on things. Is that is that legend or is that true?
2: No, it's quite true. Uh, the group really consisted of Bill Lee, who was the head of Duke Energy, Ed Crutchfield, who ran First Union National Bank, Rolf Neal, who ran the newspaper, and myself. And then off and on John Belt. Now, I say off and on John Belt because John Belt had been mayor and he had a lot of power. And John, though, had more negative power than it had, had positive power. And so what you didn't want is to have John against you. So what the group would do is we would meet and decide what we wanted to do. And then we'd go get John and, <laughs> and, and, and co-opt him if we could, mm-hmm. you know, get him to agree with us. And um, I, I put him in charge and make him co-chairman or something. Mm-hmm. So once you got John on your side. Then we had everybody going in the same direction. and Everybody being the two banks and Duke and Belt. There wasn't anybody else that could make things happen now. And we would meet usually down at Duke Energy. We'd usually meet there because it was neutral, neutral ter- ter- territory. Between the two banks. <laughs> that was a neutral territory. And How did
1: you and Ed uh, behave outside of the daily competition? Well, he,
2: we were really not friends particularly, but we shared a distaste for Wachovia. We hated Wachovia. So, the one thing we agreed on <laughs> we hated Wachovia. That, right? And uh, we truthfully did. And we, we one time sat and drank liquor together. And I mean we had vodka together talking about how much we disliked. And that was down at the beach and probably the first time we'd ever really talked to each other. And because we, but we would, we were together about the city, caring about the city together. And we supported each other. For instance, he came to me on Johnson C. Smith University, and I gave him a million dollars to start start yeah. his drive. Well, it was a very modest drive, probably to go and raise thirteen million dollars. something we raised thirty, I think. And he, in turn, would support me on say the symphony or something that he didn't really give a damn about. So on things about the city, we were together, and we we talked about what was good for the city, not what was good for the banks yeah interesting. and, uh, and we you... had a guy keeping us honest in the whole thing of course was ralph Neal, who was really a tough newspaper person and asked tough questions and and you know didn't mind speaking out about what was right or wrong
1: isn't the... it amazing how the role of media was so important it was really almost like the fourth branch, like they say, right? It was it kept very you, important. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't a partisan thing, and in this world where media can play, you know, one side or the other, yeah. it just that, it that's our biggest out.
2: weakness in America today is a very just terrible media. And yeah. well, honesty doesn't matter. Whereas the Charlotte Observer and the Charlotte News in those days, you could depend on them to have the truth come in front of you, and both sides of an argument. And they did things that were called, that are really repertorial as opposed to opinionated. In other words, mm-hmm. they actually had writers who would write down the story, the facts, as opposed to
1: mm-hmm.
2: buying their opinion. We weren't trying to get their opinion. They had an opinion page, but that's where opinions were limited to.
1: Right.
2: And uh, I think- Maybe we need
1: to start a, a new newspaper in Charlotte.
2: Well, I've heard that that. that it, at one time, Dick Spangler and I talked about it a lot, and Dick wanted to buy the state newspaper and the green, and, um, really the News and Observer, and we talked about it, but we, we never got. A, we were thinking about buying the Shaw Observer when I guess when whoever bought it, McClatchy bought it, but we never did. But Probably
1: right, a good idea you didn't buy it.
2: Yeah, it is probably a good idea we didn't buy. It. <laughs> but, but a good a good a good news. Thing is a wonderful thing to have. And yeah. that's one of the reasons I like WFAE. At least they're they, they, they at least putting both sides of the argument forward. Yeah. And um, we need that. We need uh-huh. honesty.
1: Hugh, you, you recently joined the UNCC Board of Trustees. How do you make that decision, both in terms of time allocation uh-huh. and—
2: Well, it's really—I can't decide whether it's the worst decision I've ever made or, or maybe it's going to be a great one. I did it because I wanted to help the new chancellor. I like her. She's She's terrific. She wants to bring the university into contact with the city for the first time ever, truthfully. And uh, I I, I want to help her. And so she asked me to, and I said I would. Uh, As you know, I'm I'm an outlier. They had to pass a special dispensation to allow an 88-year-long to the board. And um, I'm going to do my part. I want to help the university. You know, I think we, it's our biggest jewel that we don't really say anything about that we should. I mean, it's 30,000 students, 160,000 grads, 80,000 of them living right here. Crazy. It's the most important thing, and tremendous educator of African-Americans. And they lead in every aspect. And their big research institute do a lot of work, and yeah. as you know, in communications. And they graduate more computer people than the state does. It's unbelievable. And we don't pay them any mind. And so what I'm going to try to do is help them establish themselves. So like raise our hands and say, hey, we're here. Yeah. And we matter because they do matter uh, uh, because so many of their graduates are working for our institutions all over town. It's true. And so we just haven't, and that's my goal is to help them,
1: help her help them. Help is a word that you use a lot. Yeah. Uh, is that what gives you most satisfaction in life? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I like winning I really do. You still like winning as much as you used to?
2: It can be a little win, but I still enjoy it. Yeah. (laughs) But then it's over. When it's over, it's over. You know that win is over, and you're on to the next deal. But I want to illustrate with UNCC's business school downtown. That building sits empty all day long, and only at night does the business school meet. Now this is crazy. You've got a very expensive building sitting there, so. I'm going to bring that building into life. I'm going to help the chancellor bring that building into life. That's a very it, good have idea. people there all the time. Have something happening there. Have a yeah. happening. So that you generate energy around it. and make like, This is my goal. So if that happened, would I feel like I'd won? Yeah, I would. I would. I, I would like, I'd feel good about it. The um, same way I felt good about when the tower finally finished. You know, just taking a look at it and said, hmm. you know, we built that. And I still like looking at the tower when I'm coming from this side of town and I'll see the tower up there. I admit I get a good feeling out of it. It's a it. brief feeling, but it's good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's a little high. It's a little hit. So Hugh, speaking of like kind of the quilt of the city, you were very engaged in bringing the NFL and the NBA here. Mm. Any interesting stories of the recruiting or, 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 or showcasing our city to go bring those franchises here?
2: Well, I don't know. We have we had a. I guess the we, people still refer to the meeting we had up in uh, Wisconsin. We met somewhere that I've never heard of and <laughs> yeah. sort of off the world up there in Wisconsin and with the NFL up there. And John Belt went, and of course Jerry Richardson and yeah. Governor Martin, I think. And anyway, we got up there, and they asked us a lot of different questions, like could we guarantee we could build a stadium and. John Belt was mayor at the time. I think I was had been mayor. I can't remember. Anyway, both John and I said w- we guaranteed. Of course, I was running the giant bank by then, and right, right. and uh, I said we-, we guarantee we'll build it. It we- there- won't be. What a- was the cost of that stadium? Two hundred million dollars, roughly, and, uh, and which in today's world doesn't sound like. Maybe it was even one hundred eighty-five, but it was. It's a lot of money. It-, it was a lot of money, and we we loaned our legal limit. To the team and plus eighty million, we were, we we uh, know plus forty million, and so we exceeded so our legal. So you were
1: illegally limit. lending we, money.
2: We exceeded our legal limit by forty million by <laughs> us allowing them to issue a debenture to us, and we bought one of their debentures for forty million dollars at the parent level, away from the bank. Yeah. So we put up maybe two hundred and fifty million dollars of the of the three hundred. Why so did on. you do that? Because I knew an NFL team is what would make this be great for this city, and we we have always been a city on the make, you know. Yeah. We always trying to be somebody, and uh, you could argue we've got a huge inferiority complex, and we've been <laughs> we've been dealing with this inferiority complex forever.
1: Doesn't it bother you when people don't know the name of Charlotte? There is that Charlottesville. Is that it? The, the, well, <laughs> it,
2: it actually happened to me. I'll never forget this. I'm, 1988, we had a hurricane that hit the coast and came all the way to Charlotte and damaged Charlotte. And I was in Boston trying to buy a State Street bank, as a matter of fact. And um, I got up, and was, Jane was with me. We'd been up to New Hampshire to look at on a vacation, and I thought, well, we we'll stop in Boston and try to buy a State Street. Anyway, it was on the news that the hurricane had hit Charlotte. I said, you know, they they get us mixed up. That's gotta be Charleston. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, by the time I got home, I found the windows had blown out the 52nd story of the building. And and we had trees down in our yard all over the damn neighborhood. We had to cut our way in. It was
1: unbelievable. But but that says how much of an optimist you are. There's a (laughs) hurricane in your city and you go like, Ah they probably confused my city with something
2: yeah. well we, they did confuse us for, with Charlottesville all the time and yes. everything, but i don't I think the real arri- arrival is i was when they started referring to Charlotte in the New York Times as just Charlotte and not Charlotte, North Carolina. when they finally took the North Carolina off of it, then you know you've arrived yeah. now yeah. the truth is here's how bad i in, during the Cold War. People in Charlotte were offended because we weren't on the first bomb list for Russia. In other words, it, it, you know we, we it's a damn truth. I've, I've heard people say, "You know we're not even on the list to be bombed. This is how unimportant we are." And I thought, okay, so we've had this king-size inferiority complex, and we're always trying trying to be better, and it's, so, it's an interesting thing. You've been here a number of years and you've seen it yourself. You don't really know how you got drafted into things, but you find yourself engaged with the city and engaged in making things happen. But to tell you how you got there is very difficult. But it's expected. What I learned was if you're going to be in the business community in this city, you're expected to put your shoulder to the wheel. A hundred percent. And do something. Don't stand there. Do something.
1: And and I said, and it's our households. It's it's, it's everything. You guys led by example. Yeah, your story of, you know, Ed and you are kind of fighting it out yeah. in, in this banking world, but yet at six o'clock you care about the city really is the way that people still behave here. Yeah. All right? We have yeah. all these banks here and they're all the CEOs are aligned and doing the right thing or trying to.
2: Well, that's the fact. And that's what I really like about it. And we work together. And we don't ask each other if you're a Republican or a Democrat. I mean, this, no. this doesn't come up, this is no. not on the program. It's, yeah, it's because
1: we're not a, politi- a political city. No, yeah. it, it's yeah.
2: a and, But you put your finger. I've tried to make the point that North Carolina had a couple of really good laws. One of them was that the, you could annex any property ne- next to you without the vote of the people being annexed, and that allowed our cities to continue to grow. Oh, interesting! And we did not get white flight. We did not have what the East had, where. People moved out of Boston or out of Baltimore yeah, and to get away from get away from black people to say what it was about. Yeah. And uh, poor people they didn't want to live near poor people. Yeah. So not in this city. The, the, the wealthiest areas are right around the city That's in the heartland of the city. And we have poor neighborhoods, but we don't treat them like the yesterday's story. We 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 want to help them. <laughs> we want it to work. So that was a law. We don't have that law anymore. But we we had it long enough to keep North Carolina from having a lot of white flight. And that only in Durham did we have the moving out of people. And Durham moved out and caught them, though, eventually. But it, it, that's the only city that
1: we really ever had that in. You, you know, Hugh, I've always heard you say that you like winning. Yeah. And I think you really do. But you like something more than winning. Hmm. I think you like progress. Hmm. I think you like, and and this is why at 88, you are as young as any 40-year-old I know is because you are literally halfway in the future. We've always talked about in in this podcast that getting old is (laughs) if you talk about the past, you have so many ideas about the future.
2: Well, the future, is we have the opportunity to make it better than the past, right? Exactly. (laughs) You know, I, there are a lot of things I wish I had done differently, but you can't go back and fix that. So you just got to do better going forward. This is really what I think. But I enjoy I enjoy the game, too. Like, you know where I'm going right after I leave you? I'm going to see the new chancellor of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's business school, Kenan Flagger Business School. They want to come see me. And, and the head of the strategic planning. And, and I'm gonna have to tell them, don't tell me anything you don't want UNCC to know because I <laughs>
1: You used to be a, a trustee. In, I've been a trustee, but I
2: was only there for about one meeting. I, <laughs> and, and what I, happened? Why only one meeting? I found out they didn't really give a damn what I thought. And I, it was too expensive for me to fly up there every day to a meeting that nobody cared what I thought. So that's not how I operate. I love it.
1: <laughs> Thank you, no thank you.
2: <laughs> so I, I decided I retired. I think it shook him up. But, <laughs> but I explained to him the reason I did was, you can't tell me you don't care what I think about something and, and then expect me to come back. You know, it all goes back to childhood, really. And mm-hmm. uh, I think I've told you this before. When I, was, I, I lived in a compound of all of McCall's houses backed up to each other. We had our own baseball field and football field kind of. And we'd go out to play games, and I'd say, Johnny and I'll pick sides. Johnny, you go first. And I'd be in charge, from, and I've been in charge always, and I'd really do better when I'm in charge than when I'm not. So I like being in charge, too. I, I have to be honest. So, you do too. So,
1: so I resemble that remark. I'd yeah, exactly. rather be the yes. head of the rat than the tail of the lion. Yeah. No, you you you're
2: definitely you're definitely you're definitely bitten by the same bug. And here's another thing: I've decided to live to be a hundred because if you spend your life thinking about dying, you're not going to really have much fun. So if you think, oh, I'm going to be live to be a hundred, then I got twelve more years when you, you don't. Then you don't have to worry about it. You know. So I, I made that decision when I was about 80, so this, that I had you know, I 25% it. more of my life to live, so I had a lot more time to do things then. Now, I think that's an important attitude to have, is to think you're gonna live more or
1: less forever. I like it, I like it. and you work a lot in and trying to stay as healthy as possible I do, and yeah. all that.
2: And I've, and I've been lucky, I've had good doctors, and I, I work on preventive maintenance yeah. And, you know
1: yeah, yeah. it's it's like an airplane
2: you better keep
1: it keep it you go in for your three-year inspections and your. <laughs> your C4. every six months to the doctor yeah i'm going go every six months yeah.
2: and i go more often than that for some of them but anyway so, so what do you
1: think of uh of what gene is doing in uh atrium and bringing in a school of medicine here i know you've been very involved well
2: in- i think the school of medicine is going to be one of the greatest things that will happen to this city, yes. and it's already it's already happening. Big companies are moving here because yes. they want to be around the medical school, and what Atrium has that very few people have, very few hospitals have, is we have a lot of tertiary care patients, mm-hmm. and that's what researchers want is to be able to deal with tertiary care patients, yeah. and so a lot of research institutes already committed to coming here, big companies, and so it's going to bring. A, a lot of doctors, which means brains and money. And it's going to bring a lot of research people, and it's going to bring a lot of big companies who have a lot of money. So I think it's going to be a huge shot in the arm economically for the city. But it also will affect the cultural organizations by more philanthropy. It will affect affect sports. We'll have more demand for tickets. And um, it's going to be and it's going to be very interesting. Now, I think he's got his challenges with the mergers going on. He's yeah. got the same challenges I had. Yeah. And mergers
1: and I, are tricky. Yeah,
2: and he and I are talking about them. And it's like you got to um, <laughs> you got you got to you got to deal with the issues.
1: You know, I, I I this is a story that I I'm sure he won't mind me sharing. So he's a dear friend like you yeah. are and. uh about, I don't know, four years ago or three years ago, we were, we were hanging out one night just like Ed and you having a, a vodka. We were having something else. I don't remember what it was. And he said, well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll go to New York and run a big hospital there. And I looked at him and I said, you're crazy. Yeah. And I literally told him these words. I said, you can be the human call of our generation. Yeah. Healthcare should be the next leg of the platform yeah. like banking was. You're yeah. going to leave this perch? Someone that cares so deeply, someone that means so much to the city. Yeah. I will never talk to you again if you leave. <laughs> That's an honest story. Yeah. And literally he called me back and he said, I'm staying. You're yeah. right.
2: Well, he, he's, he's, uh, I'm meeting with him shortly. Yeah. Uh, Today I, as well? No, no, another day. <laughs> so, shortly, ne- next week, I guess. Sometime next ne- next two weeks to talk about merger. And he and I've talked a lot about mergers. And I've, you know, it, it's very interesting that 800,000 people have moved here in the last 60 years and we've gone from having a 2% Catholic population to having the largest Catholic church in the United States here. I don't know if you know that. I did not know, you know that. We do have the largest Catholic church in the United States here. Now, this shows you that we've been we we are we are constantly evolving yeah. city with yeah. people and people from somewhere else. Yeah. I think 18% of our population was born in another country. Which is a stunning number. Now in New York, it's pretty normal, but it's not normal anywhere else Mm -hmm. in America, and we're really unusual in that sense of the word.
1: Are you Catholic, you? No. No. Yeah. I'm Presbyterian, which is a shrinking population in America. (laughs) Did religion play a big role in in your no? I grew up.
2: I grew up as a Baptist, and if you try to explain that to people. (laughs) <laughs> Here's the reason, and I, I always say this, and the, everybody looks at me like I'm crazy, but we own the Baptist church. So the reason I was a Baptist is we owned the church.
1: Wait, wait, the and, bank owned the church? No, oh. our family owned the church. Oh, and interesting. the reason
2: the family owned the church is my great-great-grandfather wanted to marry a itinerant a minister's daughter, so he built him a church on our compound <laughs> so he, he he would stay, and she would stay, and she would marry him, and she did. And so... <laughs> I grew up with a Baptist church in the manse next to me on one side. Across the street was the Methodist manse. And <laughs> on the corner, on the other corner was the Nazarene church. And no, I didn't like churches, but I was surrounded by them. Uh, and,
1: uh, <laughs> you had to surrender. You were... <laughs> so,
2: I, so when I married uh, Jane, Jane's a Presbyterian, I became a Presbyterian. But McCall's a Presbyterian. We're Scots. Yes. Now, we, were pro- we were on the side of the Catholics, Bonnie Prince Charlie, and we got beaten by the English. Yeah. Um, McCall's, I always say, we were defeated warriors and cattle thieves. And <laughs> We came to this country, and they couldn't find any cattle to steal, so we became bankers. This is, um, that's the true story.
1: <laughs> We've been in that banking
2: for a couple of hundred years now, since getting here. We, is and uh, it's a sort of strange thing.
1: So Hugh, um, I know you're a member at Augusta, and you have been very involved in yeah. in, in golf and in your journey, and have loved the sport and all of that. This uh, Live PGA thing, how does it play out?
2: Well, I don't honestly know. Uh, it doesn't surprise me that that Ed Hurley he has been involved. He was my merger lawyer in every deal I ever did, and then he put that deal together. So I saw it being done down at the Augusta during the tournament, and uh, it would be it would happen in my cabin down at Firestone, and
1: I, <laughs> in I, your I, cabin is that yeah, where it yeah, happened? More, some of it yeah, that was where
2: we it. brought the the Europeans into the game. Yeah. Uh, so I don't really have an opinion about it. I think it it'll be interesting to see. Interesting. It's uh, It's it's the common denominator is money, and we'll see how that works out. Yeah. Now. It doesn't as you may know this about Augusta. We don't have opinions in Augusta. Yeah, yeah, we have yeah, a chairman yeah. who has all our opinions. <laughs> consolidated. all? So if anybody wants to know what we think, that's what we think. Whatever he says is what we think. That's the way it works. Sounds like my house.
1: Yeah. Yes, exactly. We I know exactly. How long have we been married here?
2: Sixty three years, be sixty four, October the third. What's the key? Uh, just doing what you're told. <laughs> Now, you know, I joke about it and there's some truth to it I was a traveling man a lot I was out of town a lot and so I've been out of town about a third of the marriage and that helps and um, I think that you learn the let's say compromise and surrender that may be the, you surrender may be the better word I don't think compromise actually works <laughs> <laughs> that would assume there was compromise Well <laughs> <One> way compromise <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, that's yeah, too I, I think uh, we've been very, my wife had been a very good wife and I, I would not have accomplished what I did in business if it hadn't been for my wife. She raised the family, she looked after the house. She- And, they, and she
1: told them you were great.
2: And she was a confidant. I could talk to her about personnel matters that I couldn't talk to anybody else about. Oh. She never, she knew about every damn merger that was happening, never told anybody. She she was. Amazing. An in, she was an insider in that sense of the word. And she, helped me a lot in evaluating people in, in, the, in the long run. You know, evaluating targets and mm-hmm. what would make them, what makes it so, I don't know, she's been a perfect wife. Uh, we argue a terrific amount now because she doesn't wear hearing aids half the time. <laughs> and this is, that'll cause a lot of Well,
1: argument. You're arguing and she can't hear? No, I,
2: she says, asks me a question, I give her an answer, she hears a, something different from what I said. <laughs> So, you end up defending yourself against things you haven't said. (laughs) Well, this is life, you know. But anyway, we're married. (laughs) Uh, Hugh, um, I think we'll stay that way.
1: What what an incredible honor and privilege to call you a friend, and Uh what a gift we're going to give a lot of our friends uh, because I think that uh, there are so many layers to you and and Uh so many gifts. And thank you for your selflessness.
2: Well, you're welcome. Thank you. I enjoy being your friend. Anyhow, I'm gonna go downtown and talk to the University of North Carolina now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Thank you, Hugh. That was a lot of fun for me. Here are the three things I took away from our conversation. Number one, retirement is actually the new halftime. There's so much that we can do with our networks, our wisdom, and our experience to make that second half of life even that much more productive. Number two is this notion that there's something much more powerful than a common enemy. A common enemy is galvanizing. A common purpose is inspiring. And number three, is that while not everybody has the same opportunities you has had to make such an impact, we all have, in our own little ways, ways to make our communities, our
0: families, and our society better. Thank you. Rick shared his three things, but we want to know your takeaways as well. Find at Rick Elias on social media and let us know your thoughts on this conversation. And be sure to check out additional content, videos, and more at our blog, threethings.redventures.com. Thanks for listening.